The Guardian. I'm Jonathan Friedland and welcome back to The Week in Review on our agenda this week. He ran the Downing Street press office in a very professional, straightforward and correct way and I think has, has done some very good work. But I understand why he wants to go, the things that happen to the news of the world, the stories about that, but uh, I quite understand his decision and wish him well for the future. David Cameron's communications chief Andy Coulson quits his post over those phone hacking revelations. We find out what this means for the Prime Minister, the Tories and Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation. Also in the podcast, Tony Blair's back in front of the Iraq inquiry, and Gordon Brown's former Lieutenant Ed Balls is back in the big time. But why do the shadows of the Blair Brown past continue to hang over the Labour Party? And away from all that, we talk tiger mothers, cuddly fathers, and the government's plans to teach us the basic principles of parenting. Plus, there were a lot of big films that didn't get nominated this year. Nothing for Sex in the City 2. I was sure the Golden Globe for special effects would go to the team that airbrushed that poster. Hilarious, subversive or just plain rude, we discuss the comedy of nastiness after Ricky Gervais's tour de course at the Golden Globes. It's all coming up here on The Week in Review from The Guardian. And joining me in the studio to make sense of a remarkable seven days of resignations, reshuffles, uprisings, and perhaps most shocking of all, the arrival of Polly Toynbee on Twitter, we have an especially motley crew, sadly not the motley crew, but David Schneider is an actor and comedian, Libby Brooks is the deputy comment editor of The Guardian, and Hugh Muir is the paper's diary editor. So we took mention Polly's arrival on Twitter. David Schneider, you are a sort of Twitter king. I mean, what, what's the appeal for Polly? <laughs> well, Tommy, minor royalty, I think. But minor royalty, a lesser royal. But what would draw somebody like her to Twitter? What draws you to it? Well, well, what draws me to it? I mean, how long have you got? I mean, I think it's it's this week we've seen it. It was absolutely fantastic. I was there when Coulson broke Iraq inquiry. It was like I didn't have to move. Everything was unfolding on on, on Twitter, and I guess that's what Polly Toynbee is drawn to. I think it'll be the only place where she'll think. Ooh, everyone's a bit left wing here. Um, because everyone normally get that. No, no, everyone's very liberal. Um, so she'll she'll fit in very well, I think. Should you, Hugh? Do you do Twitter? I don't know. I think I think I probably should um, because it just seems to be the place to be. I mean, if Polly's on there, um, <laughs> and you've got to get you know, all other sorts of electronic communication seem to be lost to us, particularly on the left now, because the right seem to have monopolised everything else. There is a sort of time suckage issue. The literary agent, Johnny Geller, who I confess is my own agent, did a little tweet saying, 40% of my writers have delivered late this year, I blame Twitter, because he thinks that writers, instead of writing, are sitting there just uh, watching the world go by on Twitter. So Libby, do you do it? Well, you will recall, Johnny, there was that time when you were supposed to be filing a column for me. That's true. And I saw you post some very interesting links I'm, on your feed. And that revealed that, that was I wasn't fun. actually doing my job. It's true. I was busted by yes. Twitter. That's true. That's almost a headline. I was busted by Twitter. But we start, of course, with the news that Andy Coulson's quit his job as David Cameron's communications boss. The former News of the World editor's been under severe pressure as the drip, drip of revelations over the tabloid's use of illegal phone hacking refused to go away. Coulson's always denied any knowledge of these goings on at the paper under his watch, but then around noon on the same day that Tony Blair was giving his second round of evidence to the Iraq inquiry and the papers were desperate to get the full skinny on Alan Johnson's private life, at that very moment Coulson confirmed his departure from Downing Street. So where does this leave David Cameron, who has consistently stuck by Coulson until this moment? And where does it leave News International, the News of the World's publisher, owned of course by one R. Murdoch? For this we've been 
been joined by Matt Wells, The Guardian's blogs editor and the presenter of our Media Talk podcast. So, Matt Wells, plenty thought this resignation was coming, that it was even inevitable. But were you surprised by the timing? Well, I think the timing uh, took everyone by, uh, by, by surprise. Goodness knows we've had enough resignations this week to be going on with. Uh, I think it started to become inev- inevitable at the back end of last year, uh, particularly when we learned that Ian Edmondson, who is the number three at the News of the World, appointed by uh, Andy Coulson when he was editor of the News of the World, assistant editor of News, had uh, been suspended. And this had come out because of uh, documentation. He was uh, named in documentation in the civil case being brought by uh, Sienna Miller against uh, News Corporation. The, the wheels started to come off the rogue reporter line. Then that Clive Goodman, the royal editor, was the only reporter that uh, was involved in this. And nobody else knew about it. This and was the sort of one he, bad apple. The defense. one bad apple defence. And he was the guy who, uh, who was jailed along with private investigator uh, Glenn Marquet. When it started to be, I mean, there were other people started to be named towards the end of last year. But when it got as high as, uh, as a senior executive appointed by Coulson, I think I think that's when it started to look as if um, Coulson and Cameron's uh, desire to keep hold of Coulson, which I think was genuine, um, started to look as if it wasn't going to be able to be uh, maintained for much longer. But I, so it, I mean, there had been um, there, have, there had been some speculation, even about dates, about when Coulson was going to be uh, was going to resign. But um, now, why was that? There were all kinds of people again on yeah. Twitter, for example, saying it's going to be the twenty fifth. It's going to be the. How do I don't people... know why it was that the, 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 uh, that that particular date. We do know we've learned that um, uh, that uh, Coulson announced to Cameron his desire his intention to resign on Wednesday night. So there's obviously been a bit of choreography and a bit of thought about um, what day it should be. And today, I mean, I did wonder, Tony Blair, as you mentioned, was giving evidence, his second round of evidence to the uh, Iraq war inquiry, and we were all over, that, all over that. Everyone was. That was the big story of the day. So did he think that he could, that, that it would be buried, that, that, that this news would be buried? Because if he did, he was wrong, because as soon as it happened, everybody switched over all the news organisations. Suddenly, you know, we're not interested in Tony Blair anymore, and they were live Outside, outside number 10. I mean, unless, I, his, unless his next job is to be Tony Blair's press secretary, and well, he's already awesome. started working for him, distracting from uh, bad publicity for uh, him. This was a very good day for Blair, wasn't it? I've got a good headline here. Nothing became his departure as the spinning of it. <laughs> um, I mean, clearly there was some choreography here, but I, I disagree with you slightly because I think, I'm not sure that this is the result of accumulated turbulence. I think that there's something very nasty that's come to their attention. There are lots of court papers that are being filed now. Things are coming out because I think they would have been absolutely absolutely desperate to keep on hold of Coulson. I think he's been one of the stars of the administration so far because it's basically a media government. It governs in headlines. And, and the reason they've been able to feed up those headlines to the people who've supported them, the newspapers that supported them from the outset, is because Coulson knows exactly what they want and knows how to pitch it. And so I, I think I once said that here that you know, they would have sawn a leg off before they got rid of Coulson. So there, must be some, there must be something very nasty to make them do this. But you think there was um, uh, I mean, there had been questions, hadn't they, Libby, about Cameron's judgment in standing by Coulson so long. He did say, oh, everyone deserves a second chance. But people were thinking, you know, this is becoming the old Alistair Campbell rule was when you are yourself mm. the story, it's time to get out. So what does it say about Cameron? Oh, by the same token, though, I mean, I agree, I agree with you that I actually think it shows that Cameron's got great judgment for the fact that he held on to him so long. Um, I mean, I suppose 
where the judgment is going to be tested now is when we look at the implications are, you know, for the whole of not just the news of the world, but the whole of that organisation. And obviously, you know, there is a huge corporate governance issue going on now. Um, you know, when we see that we're not just talking about the one bad apple, but we're talking about a methodology and a way of conducting yourself that sort of goes all the way to the top. And does that mean now that sort of when we're talking about Jeremy Hunt sitting down and wanting to sort of talk honestly about what the possibilities are for Sky in the future, is he really, you know, what kind of judgment is he going to bring to bear on that? I mean, Matt, give us a take on that about where this leaves news of the world. There was some thought that maybe if they haven't, the other papers haven't got the focus of Coulson as a story because he's inside Downing Street, actually a lot of other newspapers barring The Guardian, which led the way on this story, would quite like this thing to go away and for people to look away. It's interesting, some of the commentators have been saying that, oh, the heat now passes on to David Cameron, and I think the left-wing press certainly um, will take that up. But, I mean, as a former media correspondent myself, I'm more interested in what we, in, in the point that, that you're sort of getting at, really, which is, um, what is the implication for the media and for News International specifically? You're completely right that uh, most of the press haven't really taken uh, this up until it became a political story. I'm sure that The Guardian and we'll press on with it. But but the other thing is that it's, a, it's actually a celeb story as well now. Uh, it, we've got Sienna Miller, a big tabloid star, in court. And when... I mean, it's it's a bit dry at the moment because it's all court documents and all, and, and all the rest of it, and all sorts of argument about all of that. But at some point, she's going to come into court, isn't she? And she's going to start giving, giving evidence. And the tabloids just and can't the tabloids resist will be, They'll be all over that, I would have thought. Well, I don't well, know. But, but you know, well, well certainly, the, you know, the Telegraph won't be able to re- resist a gr- lovely picture of Sienna Miller arriving at the, at the Especially high Especially if she's just on a levels. Yes, that would be exactly. their ideal telegraph front. So I think I don't, I, I, it's not going to go away, uh, 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 this one. And I think if you're interested in this story, watch out for the hearings that will start coming in the courts. And, and, and what about this thing about tabloid editors? Because, uh, or, and, or at least tabloid journalists, I mean, before, and politics, before Cameron, it was Alistair Campbell working for Tony Blair. I mean, are they, are they gluttons for punishment? Are they asking for trouble, these politicians who get drawn to these tabloid hats? Yeah, there's a sort of Mephistophelian, did I manage to say that right? The Mephistophelian that they do but these are the people they, they know the people these these editors so it gives politicians from Eton the access to the people but it comes at a price and you do sell your soul and what I think we've seen happen here is that Cameron has perhaps sold his soul and desperately tried to hold on to his soul but actually I, I, we're going to see that the soul is, is well the soul lacks judgment at the very least well now he needs a new soul uh, Hugh Muir. Who's he going to go for, do you think? Cameron? Well, Labrooks um, quickly became, became busy on this one, um, putting a lot of names into the frame. Adam Bolton, Ian Dale. I think the, the, the front runner is Ian Birrell, who used to be the, uh, the, the I think, deputy editor of The Independent, and actually would be quite a good choice, because I think he's be, he'd be seen as a, a candidate with clean hands, whereas some of the others, uh, you know, you might question what their allegiances or their past. So there uh, almost might be a desire to deliberately have a non-tabloid person in that job, because it would look as if there's a change in the culture. And of course, he's been, uh, Ian Burrell has been within um, Downing Street already. I think he was a speechwriter for uh, David Cameron. He's been writing very knowledgeable pieces about what David Cameron will do next and what the philosophy is. And so I think he would be a good choice. But then would he be able to deal with the red tops? Because, of course, that is the main job. But it, when they, they get... get sorry, sorry, Hugh, maybe they should get Katie Price because she seems to be the best person <laughs> at handling the media and the red tops and the people. Steady. So, yeah. <laughs> I should walk in there saying, I know how to get on the front page of every paper every day. <laughs> and what about... Call, uh, or Polly Toynbee. indeed. That would be a radical change. They did once say the Tories they liked her more than Churchill. Do you remember that one? 
Because the other question is, so far the troubles for this coalition have been on the Lib Dem side of things. David Laws within 20-odd days and then Vince Cable just before Christmas. This is the first time there's been a serious sort of slip-up by the Tory part of the coalition, does that is that going to change things in politically? I'm not sure, Jonathan, that this is the first slip up by the Tories. I, I think it's the mo- the most major one. But if you look at, um, he had the slip up with the photographer that he brought uh, as civil servants, and then had to sort of when the royal wedding was announced, he quickly swept that away at the same time. Um, then there's a whole catalogue of little U-turns. Whether it's Michael Gove's little U-turns on uh, academies, whether it's the school sports, whether it's um, the books that art, you know. So I think there's a whole load of misplayed things that the Tories have done and this is just the clearest well this is absolutely my point in that there have been there's been scope for severe criticism of the government and if you you know Andrew Landley's position with his health reforms uh, Michael Goh's position and they haven't really got it in the neck and that's actually because they've been quite astute in making sure that those uh, elements that are, of the press that are friendly to them have got the sort of material they need bashing councils bureaucrats you know salary caps so they've been very clever in a very strategic way. I mean, Matt, some people say, like, who it just has, that Hugh just has, that uh, Cameron and, and Coulson, Coulson particularly, great judgment, very skillful. Others say Coulson wasn't so good. For example, that William Hague statement when he brought into public domain a story that had been on the margins about his bed and breakfast arrangements, yes. that that was bad judgment Terrible by Coulson. Judgment, yeah. So how do you rate Coulson and what do you think he might do next? Well, I mean, I mean, all of the, um, uh, all the political correspondents have been saying today that, 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 that broadly he's, he's, he's very good and he has the common touch, as David said, all these poshos in government you know, need, needed him. Um, and it, it was George Osborne, of course, who was the big supporter of Coulson and, and said that he had to be uh, uh, appointed. Um, so uh, I think, you, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not a Westminster hack, so I, I, I stand, stand back from that. What will he do next? Well, you know, maybe news, news, it used to be that News International and News Corporation looked after their own, and there had been speculation that perhaps, you know, before he took on the number 10 role, that he might end up going back to, to News International. But I think they're in so much trouble now over, uh, over all this that there's no question of him uh, going back. And he's in a lot of trouble. And I think, you know, a, I think a job in the media is going to be really difficult. Um, uh, he, his PR skills are, are supposedly legendary. So this is what they all do, isn't it? They, they go into private PR at some point, some lucrative um, PR job, uh, I, I expect. Although the last time we had a tabloid editor sacked over journalistic practices, he resurfaced five years later on CNN. So maybe it's Andy yes. Coulson tonight that will be on uh, American TV in a few years' time. You never know. But Matt I've Wells... Got some, uh, I've got... Do you want some Coulson jokes before I go? A Coulson joke, I've got please. some Coulson jokes. Uh, 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 why did Coulson, Coulson resign? He couldn't hack it anymore. Um, sh- show Andy Coulson your support. Leave a, ves- leave a message on your voicemail. Hold on, that is actually my tweet. That's yours, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I credit if you yeah. would mind that's just there. crediting yeah. me for yeah. that. Yeah. That's, that's your trouble with Twitter. It's out there. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, did, you, uh, did you see that, um, uh, the, the, that line that uh, Andy Coulson used today about um, when the spokesman needs a spokesman, it's time to go, which I thought was a fantastic that's line. That's a good line. It was um, uh, it's Ar- uh, Ar- Armando Yunucci's from six months ago. It ripped it off. Tweet. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah ripped yeah, it off. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, how did Andy Coulson find out about his resignation first? He heard it on David Cameron's voicemail. Excellent. Matt Wells, that's, what, we, that's, that's the Twitterverse uh, that's for you. fantastic. For more video, comment and analysis of all the political and media angles to this story, head to guardian.co.uk. Matt Wells, thanks. The Week in Review with Jonathan Friedland. Let's just speak for a moment or two about the two other big 
political stories this week. Tony Blair making that appearance in front of the Iraq inquiry, his second time there, while Ed Balls has now replaced Alan Johnson as the shadow chancellor after Johnson resigned due to what one aide told me was, quote, a massive personal issue. Um, Libby, let's start with you. It is Really noticeable. There's Blair dominating the news at Chilcot. The big thing everyone knows about Ed Balls, he worked for Brown. The reason why some Blairites are worried about him is because they think he's too like Brown. One way or another, it just seems it's still Brown, Blair, Blair, Brown all the time. Why is it this shadow hangs over Labour so much? Um, I suppose because it was a really compelling narrative for a very long time. And unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, arguably, uh, Ed Miliband hasn't been able to present the press and the public with a new narrative to speak of as yet. And yet the whole point was meant to be they're a new generation. You needed to get out from the brown Blair generation and go to the younger lot, and they are younger, and yet we're still talking about it. I think I'm, I'm really looking forward to being pleasantly surprised by Ed Bowles, though. Um, that sounds a bit pervy, actually, doesn't it? <laughs> there is a problem with his name. We've got to just face this. You know, yeah. there's this quote from George Osborne saying, if Bowles is shattered Chancellor, he'll be down my throat 24 hours a day. <laughs> you know, this, these are, there is a problem with the name. I mean, there are some people who think maybe he should, a long time ago, have taken his wife's name and become Ed Cooper, uh, because it is always going to be an issue. Hugh, have you... It even standard reacted very quickly. Miliband reigns to moves to reign in balls. You know, it, it, it's always it's yeah, always going to be gets the sack. It's, it's, <laughs> be, it's endless. It's going to be an endless problem. But I think that there will be many in the Labour Party who will. <laughs> who might not like Ed Balls, who will have wanted to do away with all that brownism, but will also think, thank God we've got a Rottweiler now. Because you know, the government's been strange, the, the, the opposition's been strangely muted in the way it's been taking it to, um, to, to, to the condemned government. Um, you, again, we talk about health. Um, our, you know, we've been critical in our paper uh, about the the lack of criticism, the lack of rigour uh, that the opposition has shown towards uh, Andrew Lansley. Um, and I think that Ed Balls will have a different approach towards George Osborne. I think he'll go for him, and I think that that will uh, be quite good for morale in the party. He is a street fighter. You're I, nodding, Dave. I right? think it's great. I mean, I, I'm sure that as uh, uh, Alan Johnson was heading off to resign, George Osborne was clinging to his legs, begging him not to go because he thought, uh, I don't want Ed Balls. And probably Ed Balls also has an ill-fitting uh, police protection officer kit in his uh, <laughs> wardrobe. It's all very suspicious. But, but as, as a Labour sympathiser, I just think that's great. That's what we need. Need. Ed Balls is a terrier. Um, he's going to really go on the attack. Um, Does it matter that people say he's not popular, that he's not well-liked on TV, that he's a divisive I, figure? Does any of that matter? Well, if you look at the leadership campaign, um, and I wasn't an Ed Ball, I wasn't supporting Ed Balls in the leadership campaign, but I kept thinking I should because he was hit, uh, scoring hit after hit in the media. He did it, incredibly well. He did incredibly well. And, and uh, that excites me that... You know, uh, Miliband, he's got this blank piece of paper that he's, he's doodling on. But here we have someone who can really go on the attack. All right. Well, we did say the other half of this because he was Mr. Brown's uh, number one ally. The other half of that relationship, that compelling narrative was Blair. And he was back this week in front of the uh, Chilcot Committee. Five hours he was there. I mean, it's one of these things. I was actually in the room for much of it. But for those people watching, Hugh, did you learn anything new? I don't think we did learn anything new, and I think that was that, so. That was his intention, wasn't it? I mean, really, it seemed to be a rerun of his appearance last time. They were very respectful towards him. He was, as he always is, 
just superb in, in, in terms of the way he presents himself and the way he presents an argument. And watching it, I just had this overwhelming sense of sadness, really, because here you have someone who uh, won three elections, um, ran, ran the country for a considerable period of time, and yet he has no respect in his homeland. It, it, it was like... It wasn't Nuremberg, but, you know, it was... It was it, it, <laughs> He did see he'd come here for a clobbering, mm. and and he almost had this look about him. When will this end? You know, will this be the last clobbering? And this is not even sympathy. It's just saying that you know, given all he's done, what a trajectory. Um, mm. You know, what will he do now? He'll have left the country immediately afterwards, and really, in a way, that's probably the only place he's comfortable being abroad. Because when he's here, we just throw sponges at him. It is true. He's here very, very rarely. But people who are against the um, Iraq War, Libby, did always say we want an inquiry, we demand an inquiry. Here it is. And yet, do you think that people would be satisfied by this process? Has it actually given any kind of healing or closure? Well, I mean, Chilcott has said that he's sort of very anxious to make sure that the outcome of this inquiry sort of doesn't feel like a whitewash, doesn't attract the criticisms that the outcomes of all the other inquiries that we've had have done. Um, but I think everybody is just, I mean, I know it's, it's a truism, but I think everybody is just so fatigued now and has sort of just kind of lost the plot as well in terms of exactly where we're at and who said what and who said what to whom and yeah. at which point this was particularly explosive and, and you sort of, you, you see Blair I mean, in front of the cameras and you can't sort of quite remember if you've seen him doing exactly that line before or no, not. No, I felt that too. I mean, watching it, you know, and they're referring to the memo from December 2002 and the meeting in January 2003 and you just think, unless you're a real Iraq anorak and there were plenty of them there, it's very hard to follow all that. And, and you, you can't help but feel, uh, think about that movie, The Ghost, I think, when he's there, you know, which is about this former prime minister who's going around the world. There's always protesters there. But amazingly, in that room, and it's a very small room, he is still such a dominant figure. I mean, the sort of, he sucks the oxygen out of the air. He's a star, really, whether you hate him, as the people outside did, or, or whether you love him, and there are still people who do. It was a very, very emotional thing there. As he left, member families of the bereaved shouting at him and saying, your lies killed my son, one person said to him. Uh, as he left, I mean... Is this a wound that can ever heal? I think heal? that's what it's about now. Um, I mean, nothing really very new emerged today, but I'm, I'm not sure that we even needed that. I think there's a catharsis about the whole process now. Um, and, you know, when they're previewing the story in the morning, you, know, you, you almost expect the, the man on the Today programme saying, today Tony Blair will get his head kicked in again. <laughs> Tickets on sale. Um, I think that's what the, the purpose has been. And if that happens, you can find out all about it and the rest of the news about Blair and Bulls and all of them at guardian.co.uk forward slash politics. <laughs> I'm going to take all your stuffed animals and burn them. No, that's not Ed Ball shouting at some poor flunky. It's an anecdote from a controversial new book about raising your children the Chinese way. Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother outlines Amy Schwa's method of parenting, which takes the notion of tough love and turns it up to 11. And if you don't get that Spinal Tap reference, don't ask me to explain it. Tiger mothers focus on discipline and dogma and stick two fingers up to the more permissive style of Western child-rearing. Now, this book's come out in the UK in the same week that Nick Clegg described Britain's system of paternity leave as Edwardian. 
And just as the Labour MP, Graham Allen produced a report saying the government needs to do more to help teach people the basic principles of parenting. We'll come on to that in a moment. First, though, this tiger mother approach. I mean, she says in there, Libby, um, that you uh, the, the strict approach to parenting means no sleepovers. It means not just an hour of music practice a night, but three. There's got to be reading for hours and hours on end, no video games, no uh, computers, etc. Very disciplinary and very strict. You've written about childhood uh, and the like quite a bit. Do you, what about this method? It does seem pretty full on. Well, I suppose the first thing that interests me about it is that she's sort of contrasting this with the uh, Western-style parenting. Um, but actually, in, in terms of sort of the Chinese upbringing she's talking about, you've got all of these only children in China who, you know, you've had study after study after study. They're called little emperors, and they're incredibly spoiled, actually. I mean, yes, they are hot-housed, but uh, I'm not sort of convinced that you know, she seems to be taking kind of almost the worst from uh, Western style and the worst from Chinese style. And then also, I suppose I just get really, really weary of parents who are perhaps feeling so slightly anxious or uncertain about their own parenting style and are also able to write... <laughs> Yeah. subjecting the rest of us to what they think is the best way to bring up their kids. I mean, my first reaction to it when I looked at it was anybody who's living through that would just be very, very unhappy. I mean, what do you think, Hugh? It just seemed to me that even if it did produce a, you know, somebody with 10 A stars and great A-level results after that, if it makes them this miserable, it can't be worth it. Well, I, but I think that the, if it does produce that, then there will be a lot of people who, 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 who want that. I mean, I, 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 I was quite taken by this by the story she's written a book and there were lots of reports following on from that book um but last october um i wrote a piece of some from some research which showed that um of children who take uh free, who get free school meals the, the the percentage in the general population that get five or more a to c grades was 26.6 percent and and uh, for chinese pupils in that same category it was 70.8 percent so in other words they must be doing something right. something was was going on now i i, I don't uh, advocate the, the kind of martial law um in bringing up your children um but i just did i wrote the article because i did think it was interesting and, and no, you've got to, to, to get no, some true. idea a striking of number, Dave. but but you know when you say uh and 70 percent get uh, ac whatever um, someone's doing something right that that sort of makes me go no no because isn't it about happiness and i don't want to get all cameron on us but you know and get a happiness index but um but i'm i mean i'm going through i've got a teenager who's facing gcse and it's a struggle all the time how much do you push um you know uh, she feels i'll be disappointed if she only gets b's and it's it's a you've got to hold on i'm someone who was pushed academically and you've got to hold on to happiness being more important than academic well, is that true though isn't that just a very sort of you know Guardian-ish, Islington-ish uh, view that actually I just want the child to be happy. And actually maybe, that, you know, particularly for people on lower incomes, maybe this kind of drive and discipline, you said, Hugh, the results are there. I mean, maybe this is the right way to do it and we're actually just being a bit hand-wringing about it. I want to get into the ethnic thing because this is what interests me a lot. The phrase, the, it's not I- irrelevant that she's a Chinese mother and she says this is the Chinese approach. Uh, it turns out apparently that she's married, I think, to a Jewish man, so those kids are really getting it from both sides. But is there something 
Ethnic. Yes, I, I mean, I wondered if Chinese is almost shorthand for basically ethnic parenting. Yes, she does say that any immigrant group would understand. And I think that's true, the pushiness. I mean, I think the fact that there's a Jewish husband, that it's the male Jew, uh, it explains that he just does nothing and lets her get on with it. Um, but I was thinking about my own background where the, the, the Jewish mother, the Jewish approach, I think, is, is, is less confrontational and maybe more devastating because it's out of guilt. So oh, you don't want to work. That's fine. I'll just be crying in the kitchen. It's that sort of thing, which I think can it's passive be... Aggressive. As opposed to aggressive. Yes, which I, I personally I think can be as as devastating as torching your cuddly. Your toys. late grandmother will be heartbroken that you failed your GCSE, that, but yeah. never mind. If you want to go out, that's your choice. Is it an ethnic thing? Well, you- what was it? What was it to me when um, I, I wrote a piece was that. that we try to take the best of this society and not to absorb the rest. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this is, you know, things... Who's that, the we here when you say we? It, I, I was talking to a lady who was from the Chinese community centre in London, um, but she was saying that the, uh, what the Chinese community try and do is not to cut themselves off. You know, you, the woman who wrote The Tiger Mum, that's an extreme case. That's why she's written a book about it. You know, that's, that's why there's enough incident to write a book about it. Most people don't go that far. But what they try and do is say, well, you know, we like, we like this society, but we don't like all these kids watching television so much and we don't like the fact that they're you know all these computer games um and we don't like them you know, going going out too much um you know to, to, to clubs and, and all that drinking so that what they're saying they, they try and cut back on that stuff um and, and replace that with i don't know hard work and more wholesome activity now i may go home tonight and try it on my kids it, I, I don't think it will last very long but in some way, it seems to work for them, and they seem to, they seemed to be happy doing it as well. Libby, let's just have a quick word on this paternity leave story. Nick Clegg saying that dad should get much more than just two weeks at home for paternity leave. And the example that's mentioned everywhere is Iceland, where it was incredible to me that all fathers get three months off work on 80% of pay. I mean, should we, as an ideal, let's not get into whether it's practical or not, but as an ideal, would it be better if we had that kind of system here? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we should definitely be aiming towards a situation where both the mother and the father can take equal amounts of paid time off to look after their children. Um, I mean, I think I think there were sort of some anxieties raised about the fact that you know, particularly within the first few months, if you've got a mother who is breastfeeding, then it is just sort of practically better to have her around than the dad um, but by the same token I think if you look at for example Sweden they've got sort of so much more flexibility in terms of when parents and particularly fathers can take time off they can take time off sort of up to I think five years after the child is born I think we want to be heading for that kind of flexibility. And what about personally Dave you mentioned your own kids when you did you take paternity leave I don't know whether it arises for a well, an freelance actor, you, comedian yeah, and actor. Sometimes um, you take years of paternity leave. Um, <laughs> would you have liked to if you were in sort of paid regular staff employment do you think you'd have gone for the three month option? Yeah I, I would have loved to I mean I think what's what's interesting about this story is uh, for me is uh, is Nick Clegg um, trying to get some liberal credentials back um, on a very what well, I mean it's not a small issue but um, in, in the scheme of things that it's like they've tossed, tossed him this little liberal bone that he can play with uh, for a little bit and oh we're all Edwardian whereas in fact most of what the government's doing is, is Victorian so it's actually quite progressive to be Edwardian <laughs> um, uh, so that's what I find interesting is, is, is Nick Clegg who's a broken man really sort of trying to f- fly these little flags where he can of liberalism 
Now, depending on the reviews you've read, Piers Morgan's interview with Oprah Winfrey wasn't the most cringeworthy performance by a Brit on American TV this week. Ricky Gervais's turn as the host of the Golden Globes has been described as, among other things, comedy carnage, showbiz vandalism, career suicide, and a lol fest, which I believe is meant to be a good thing. Here's a taster of his charm offensive, or should that be, offensive charm. Our first presenter is beautiful, talented, and Jewish, apparently. Mel Gibson told me that. He's obsessed. This down-to-earth girl next door first stole our hearts as a bus driver and then as a railway fare collector. Now, of course, she wouldn't be seen dead on public transport because as she just said to me backstage, poor people are gross and they smell bad. Please welcome Sandra Bullock. Many of you in this room probably know him best from such facilities as the Betty Ford Clinic, and Los Angeles County Jail. Please welcome Robert Downey Jr. Aside from the fact uh, that it's been hugely mean-spirited with mildly sinister undertones, I'd say the vibe of the show is pretty good so far, wouldn't you? Cue many awkward cutaways and rictus grins from the assembled Hollywood glitterati. Now, Hugh and Libby, funny there you are. I'm sure you won't mind if I turn to our actor and comedian here first, David Schneider. You've done those sorts of gigs. I mean, maybe not the Golden Globes, but you've been in front of an audience. Did he get it wrong? Uh, well, uh, I think comedically, no. Uh, I think what was the, the reason why I haven't done the Golden Globes is because I don't have that incredible sense of it doesn't matter, I'm going to go for the comedy. Uh, and that's what was exciting there, was that he didn't factor in at all uh, who was going to be there. He didn't compromise. It was like the fool in front of the king. Um, and I found that very exciting. He, The jokes were good. Um, it was great to hear... The, uh, a whoa rather than a laugh for, for, for the Scientology joke for example um, and is that what you aim for with comedy well, you sometimes listen, not want to laugh I, you want the gasp I like to be liked but I admire comics who just want to be funny and don't care uh, and that's what he's done and he's had to up his game all the time because that's his shtick and now he's found he's, he's like he's like a, an adrenaline junkie or an addict he's has to push and push and push and now he's pushed ultimately but you know credit to him he went for it Hugh offended I wasn't offended I thought it was brilliant and of course I thought that the reaction was the brilliant thing uh, particularly people like Robert De Niro who was he could see that the, the, the other stars around him were embarrassed by it, were horrified by it, and that was what seemed to be amusing him. He was kind of sniggering quietly to himself. Would he have been different if it had been against him, if the gags had been directed to him? In other words, you can laugh when it's other people. Well, maybe so, but uh, what you had was this kind of sense of something spiralling out of control, because it's like the man who buys a dog and then suddenly realises the dog is fiercer than he thought it was going to be, and it it bit him. Because I'm sure they wanted some... They wanted to be a bit edgy, didn't they? They wanted edge. We're not the Oscars, we can be a bit edgier. I mean, he has said apparently the night before he said it was not his, it was his intention rather not to be asked back, in which case, you know, mission accomplished, I think. But it's a bit funny business this week, obviously funny business, but it's an awkward business, isn't it? Humour. I mean, whether, what Dave said, I think is just so interesting. Do you want to be liked or do you want people to laugh with you? But for the audience, what's more comfortable? Should it be a pleasant experience Mm. or quite a? I mean, I do do feel like we've got our sort of calibration slightly wrong on the offensive ometer when it comes to Ricky Gervais because I mean I sort of like the pair of you thought that he was um, that he was grand 
but uh, you know on the other side of it you know you've got um Frankie Boyle mm. making jokes about paedophilia and certain celebrities disabled children and you know which which to my mind is highly offensive but and sort of seeming to be lumped in those sort of I think what? it's a really good one those kinds of gags the ones that Libby just mentioned Dave, for you as a comedian, if they're funny, is that all that matters? Well, that's right. I think if the, if a gag is funny, uh, it's fine. And the reason why the Frankie Boyle uh, disabled kid wasn't funny was because it wasn't there was no truth to it. Because it, it, uh, kids in that condition don't try to rape their mothers or whatever. So so it was sheer offence without any comedy. Ha- there are other Frankie Boyle gags that are held up as offensive that I would defend because I think they're making a point and there's truth behind them. But what he's lost, if we're talking at him at the moment he's lost himself in a sense of let's offend rather than let's be funny and i think ricky gervais got it right he tried to be funny and offended but was truthful but his main goal was to be funny and it's really interesting this idea of truth that a joke to a guest have an element of truth in it but there does seem to be something in the air or maybe just television about nastiness you know you do i mean and robinson's been doing weeks link for ages her whole persona is nasty simon cowell being the mean judge and you mentioned frankie boyle jimmy carr's act edge and nastiness an american writer called it snark you know this kind of snidiness what was going on there Hugh? well uh, there is an appetite for that sort of thing i was talking to uh, a friend of mine who, who does stand up vis-a-vis the Frankie Boyle incident. She was saying that comedians really are are, are almost like the last truth-tellers, particularly in terms of issues that one might deem politically correct. Uh, Her argument was that we think we're at a certain place, we think we've reached a certain level of advancement, but we haven't really. And the only people who are pointing out the disparity between where we are and where we we really are and where we think we are are the comedians. And maybe it's just that when they point that out, we don't like having that pointed out to us, and so we react badly. Yes, I think comedians, we're the WikiLeaks of the arts. Uh, I mean, I I think that's what's great about what Ricky Gervais did... It was comedy WikiLeaks, uh, and that was great to see. Now, before we draw proceedings to a close, it's worth noting that this week marks the 50th anniversary of this immortal phrase delivered during John F. Kennedy's inaugural address. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. So I need you to be Kennedy-esque uh, right now and tell us something similarly inspirational, a favourite quote starting with you, Hugh Muir. I'm going to be quick, I'll have two. One's the comic one, which is Groucho Marx, I've had a marvellous time, but this wasn't it. <laughs> <laughs> and the serious one, I think it's probably Churchill, we'll all get to Churchill, I, I love them, this is not the end or the beginning of the end, but the end of the beginning. Okay, Libby, from you. Given that it is Burns Night next week, which I'm sure you all knew about, uh, I thought that I would bring my favourite Burns quotation, which is, a man's a man for all that, which comes from one of Robert Burns's most famous songs and is basically all about how everyone is created equal in the eyes of God. Something from you, yeah. Well, I've got, I've got two options. One spins off from our Ricky Gervais uh, conversation, which is... Um, uh, Bill Cosby, who said, you know, I'm not sure um, how you succeed, but I know how to fail, and that's by trying to please everyone, which I think is quite an interesting... Yeah, I, I, I mull on that a bit, um, chew on that. Uh, and the other one that I chew on is since I've been a child, the Rabbi Hillel, you might know this one yourself, John. It's a, a tricky thing when you first hear it, and the saying is, if I am not for myself, then who will be for me? If I am not for others, then who am I? 
and if not now when now that's a three-part thing but it's like oh, big it's a big one but it's like basically be yourself think of others and do it now uh, and it took me about 25 years to work out that that's what he meant but uh you know you see, we've got it all here. Politics, media, philosophy, and a bit of uh, moral inspiration and uplift. We could be in the uh, body and soul section of, uh, of, of, and the self-help section of your podcast bookshop. Thank you to Dave Schneider, Libby Brooks, and Hugh Muir. You'll find links to what we've discussed at guardian.co.uk slash review. That's where you'll find all the info about subscribing to us on iTunes. In the interests of corporate balance, I should point out that other podcasting sites are available. Our producer is Ben Green. I'm Jonathan Frieden, hope to see you again next time. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.